Well, as we prepare to open God's Word this evening, let us pray together that He would bless it to us. Open our eyes, Lord God, to behold marvelous things in Your Word, that we may be amazed at Your love, trust Your promises, and seek always the free gifts that You came to give to us poor sinners. In Your most holy name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. And now turn with me, if you would, to the end of Colossians 1. Our sermon text this evening will be Colossians 1, 24 through 2, 5. So to put it in a not confusing way, we'll begin at the end of Colossians 1 and end at the beginning of Colossians 2. Colossians 1, 24 through 2, 5. This is God's holy word. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, for though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So far, the reading of God's Word. So, I wonder how many of you have uh, built something or accomplished something or made something that you're really proud of, that you want people to see and and recognize. Uh, Personally, I admit I can be envious of those with carpentry skills. I always thought it'd be really cool to be able to start with just this pile of wood and end up with a nice rocking chair or something like that. But I can't do those things, but, you know, I'm sure we can all relate to that sort of feeling. And it may not even be a skill. It might be an accomplishment. I think of those uh, 26.2 stickers that people have on their cars. I didn't notice any in the parking lot tonight, but if you've run a marathon and you're here tonight, you know, congratulations. But what I'm getting at is this human tendency we all have to want to accomplish things and then make those things known so that other people see how good they are and maybe even praise us a little bit for doing them or making them. Well, this evening we're looking at Paul's work of ministry, and we'll see that Paul does indeed want God to see this work of ministry that he has toiled and labored for, but Paul isn't seeking credit for it. He gives the glory to God, and we'll see primarily tonight as we look at this passage that Paul rejoices even in the suffering and the struggle that he does undergo to preach Christ, all with the driving desire to bring maturity to every believer. 
So these verses organize themselves in sort of two general headings. Verses 24 through 29 explain Paul's joyful suffering that he endured for the sake of his goal. And then verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2 explain his joyful struggle as well as a more specific plan to accomplish that goal. So let's begin with that first point by looking first at verses 24 and 25, which to read them again, Paul says this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Now right away, in the first part of verse 24, we're probably struck with a little bit of confusion or maybe uneasiness hearing those words read. I would think verse 24 has got to be included in any edition of the heretic's pocket guide to twisting scripture, right? What could it possibly mean that Paul fills up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? What could be lacking? And furthermore, how does Paul think he's going to fix the situation? Well, let's start by saying what we know that this can't mean. Paul filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions does not indicate in any way that the atonement is deficient. It doesn't mean that another human being needed to complete the work that Christ begun on the cross. Paul, after all, is the one who taught us that what Christ alone did and accomplished is sufficient for salvation. So he isn't saying that the atonement or anything else That's a part of Christ's saving work is deficient. So what is he saying then? Well, we have to notice Paul's rhetorical strategy here. From the end of verse 23, picking up before where we started our passage tonight, he's entered into this metaphor taken from the world of finance. That phrase translated, filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, is a part of this financial metaphor that he's unfolding. And the metaphor goes something like this. The riches, mentioned later in verse 27, have already been earned by Christ through his afflictions. Those riches are sitting in God's bank account, so to speak. And Paul has been given the job of dispersing those riches to the Gentiles through his ministry. The riches have been earmarked for God's elect among the Gentiles, but have yet to be dispersed to them. So, the filling up what is lacking is to make those payments of the riches of salvation to God's people among the Gentiles. So, there's a real lack here, but it doesn't have to do with the riches Christ accumulated. Those are plenteous, and they're fixed, and they're secure, But what remains lacking is the allocation of those riches to the Gentiles. They remain, at the time Paul is writing this letter, largely unaware of the kingdom treasures that have been set aside for them. And it's Paul's job to tell them that's how he fills up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. In verse 24, Paul continues this financial metaphor, saying that he became a minister according to the stewardship from God. And Paul defines for us what that God-given stewardship looks like. His task is to make the word of God fully known. And just to pull back the curtain on the ESV translation committee here, the verb translated make known here is related to the verb in the last verse, fill up. 
Additionally, the word translated word here, logos, is one of those very versatile Greek words that can mean all sorts of things in different contexts. And in financial contexts, it refers to an account of money, like a bank account. So, with all of that in mind, we could faithfully paraphrase this verse in a way that's consistent with the financial metaphor Paul is developing here to say that Paul's task of stewardship is to disperse God's bank account. And that work of distribution is exactly what one would expect a minister, a servant, with a stewardship to do because the duties of household servants in first century Greece often included the management of finances for their masters. So again, the deficiency Paul alludes to in these verses doesn't have to do with the quantity or the quality of God's account. The account of God is overflowing with glorious riches. Rather, it's the worldwide payout of those riches that needs to be completed, and that's what Paul's doing as a minister of God. That's his charge. Well, with all of that said, we're ready to move on to verses 26 and 27 and see that Paul disperses the account of God by proclaiming his mystery. Paul says that the word of God is the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. And here, as in most other places in his letters, Paul is using this word mystery to refer to something that was present in the Old Testament, but unclear in some way. Shrouded in shadow, prefigured in type, but not fully apparent and clear. But now the mystery has been revealed. The mystery is Christ in you, Paul says. Christ in the Colossian church, a primarily Gentile congregation. So the implication is clear. Both believing Jews and Gentiles stand on level ground because they're both identified with Jesus. This teaching was not completely hidden in ages past. It was evident to a small degree, but now it's fully revealed publicly and historically by the death and resurrection of Christ. Paul goes on to explain more about the mystery, focusing in verse 27, saying that the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles is Christ and that Christ himself is the hope of glory. So first, the fact that Paul says God chose here underlines that it was God's predetermined plan from all eternity for the Gentiles to join his covenant community. He was always going to bless the nations of the world through the singular seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Second, the phrase riches of glory refers back to what we mentioned just a few minutes ago. Paul is talking about Christ's earned righteousness, the salvation riches that he's accumulated and which are kept safely in God's bank account. By virtue of their union with Christ, Christians receive the credit for Christ's righteousness and the heavenly hope that his active obedience provides. So putting all of this together, what we've seen so far is that Paul's job as a servant in God's household, the church, is to disperse the wealth of salvation By proclaiming Christ to the Gentiles. Now in verses 28 and 29, we'll see a little bit more about Paul's apostolic mission. And we'll go ahead and reread those verses now. Him we proclaim, Paul says, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. 
So the first thing Paul says is we proclaim Christ. That is his duty as a steward of God's account. Because salvation only comes through Jesus, Paul and his fellow heralds of good news from the first century all the way to the 21st preach Christ alone. And how do they do that? Paul says they do that by warning, by teaching. Warning here means notifying every person about their sinful, fallen condition. That unless something changes, their guilt under God's law necessitates that God punish them. That they will experience wrath for their sin someday. And then teaching means instructing everyone about the way to escape that incoming wrath. To flee to Christ for salvation and to trust in him alone. So we see that in proclaiming Christ, there's a negative and a positive to this Christ-centered ministry. Warning and teaching, law and gospel. And did you notice who the recipients are of this proclamation? It's everyone. Again, the emphasis is that God's redemptive revelation comes now to Gentiles as well as Jews. There's no part of Christian teaching reserved for any specific ethnic group or any self-styled elite or any other group that we could come up with. All the truth of God is for all the people of God. And Paul, as we've seen, was charged with dispersing Christ's riches to the Gentiles And here's where he reveals his goal, in order that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This purpose statement is the heart of our passage tonight. And the focus is primarily on the future. The idea here is that believers have begun to be identified with Christ even now, but at the end of history, they will be fully transformed, fully identified with, fully conformed to Christ. And this verse has another one of those sticky translation issues where there's just no perfect English word to get at what Paul is saying here. Uh, The Greek word here is almost always rendered either mature or perfect, which are both fine translations, but neither one completely captures the idea. The English perfect has this sense of absoluteness that just isn't quite right. But mature is also too weak and subjective. We could be tempted to think that we're mature as long as we can look to the person to the side of us and say, you know, I'm not sinning as much as they are. Look to the person around us and say, I pray more than them, so I must be mature. But even though we can't use just one of these words to convey everything Paul was conveying, we can still describe what he was getting at. What he's getting at is that all believers will someday be in a totally Christ-like condition. They will be fully conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, beyond disease, beyond death, beyond sin and suffering. And we know that that kind of maturity, that kind of perfection and completeness is not attainable before the return of Christ, and yet there's still an application for this age, for today. As the new creational community, the church should reflect some measure of the transformation that will one day be complete in us, even now. As people filled with God's own spirit, the church should be wholly turned to God in love and turned to one another in loving service, all the while still looking forward to the final day of the Lord in which every Christian will be made complete and mature, and lacking, and nothing, and fully glorified, as we often call it. 
So Paul's goal is clear, but how can he fulfill this task of presenting believers fully grown in Christ? As he describes it, it's through toil and struggling, two words that come up often as Paul discusses his ministry. Paul toiled and struggled more than any of us could probably imagine. He was lashed, he was beaten, he was stoned, he was shipwrecked. But these afflictions were not evidence of God's curse on Paul, as his enemies would have it. They weren't a judgment. Rather, they were part of God's good plan to use Paul for the sake of his gospel, for the sake of his ministry, dispersing God's riches to the Gentiles, to preach the good news of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection to the very people who would turn around and imprison him and persecute him. But lest the Colossians commence planning some celebratory banquet for Paul for how much he's put up with and how hard of a worker he is, he adds in verse 29, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So Paul's toil is not a self-sufficient toil. He's only able to carry on because of God's power. He's making sure that none of his hearers think his ministry is rooted in his own skill or his own work ethic. Rather, as he says in 1 Corinthians 15.10, by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. I worked harder than any of them, yet it was not I, but God who was working through me by his grace. So Paul is not the center of God's work in history, and he does not want the Colossians to think that. That center is the Christ whom Paul proclaims. Well, now we move on to chapter 2, having looked at Paul's joyful suffering for the church. Now we see Paul's joyful struggle. In verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. In this verse, we see Paul is struggling not only for those he's writing this letter to, for the Colossians, but also for the Laodiceans, a city in the same general region as Colossae, uh, just a little bit north in the Lycus Valley. So Paul is zooming in from this broader view of his ministry as a whole he's been describing at the end of chapter 1 to this more narrow, locally focused description and specific application to his hearers as well as their neighbors to the north. And he starts by mentioning how great a struggle he has on their behalf. He could be talking about his current imprisonment. He was writing this letter while in prison. We're not exactly sure what he has in mind when he talks about his struggle. It could have been any number of things. But the point is that he is dedicated to spreading the gospel, even in prison. He's taking his charge as the steward of God's account seriously. Then in verses 2 and 3... He says that he struggles for this purpose, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, we have to pause here and say a quick word about the point, at this point, about the heresy that was facing the Colossian church. You may recall Paul wrote this letter after receiving the report of a minister from Colossae called Epaphras, and Epaphras' report was largely positive. He had a lot of good things to say about the Colossians you can see earlier in chapter 1. But there was one major problem, and that was 
the presence of false teachers in Colossae who were threatening the truth of the gospel and the health of that church. And this is one of those things that, you know, New Testament scholars love to debate. There are books written about who were the Colossian heretics. And while we're not 100% certain of the identity of these false teachers, it seems that the most likely case is that they were some kind of Jewish mystics. They focused on achieving these spiritual ascents into heaven so that they could witness how the angels worshipped God in the heavenly throne room. And they did that. They went on these spiritual ascents through strict obedience to the Mosaic law, combined with a sort of asceticism, physical oppression of their own bodies. So in the minds of these Jewish mystics, the knowledge of divine mysteries was gained through heavenly visions and was restricted to a small group of elite individuals who could actually keep the Mosaic law to this sufficient degree and who denied their physical bodies. They didn't sleep, they didn't eat, they would do all these things. Now this sense of elitism and divisiveness was threatening to infiltrate the Colossian church. That was the big problem they were facing. And honestly, little has changed even to this day. Because we like to do the same thing. Whether it's in our minds or out loud, we divide the body of Christ into two groups. The elite, the, you know, the Christians who have it all together, who do all the right things. And then the ordinary Christians. You know, They may not have to face God's wrath when they die, but that's about all you can say of them. Maybe we draw that line of division on issues of parenting or education. Maybe we draw it along a political divide. Maybe the line is drawn on a particular view of creation or science or eschatology. Perhaps the amount of time you spend in prayer and Bible reading every day puts you on one side of the line or the other. Wherever we draw that line, being on the right side of the line makes you a better Christian. It takes you to the next level. But Paul will not tolerate any attempt to divide the body of Christ. In verses 2 and 3, Paul asserts that knowledge and wisdom, the particular issue lines that were drawn in Colossae at that time, those are revealed in Christ, who in turn is revealed to each and every believer in that church. So with that background in mind, let's look at these verses again a little bit closer. First, we see that Paul says the aim of his struggle is that their hearts may be encouraged. And he also says that this encouragement will take place as they are united in love. He wants their love for one another to grow as they're increasingly aware that all of them are on this same path to maturity in Christ. All of them, they're not to be divided in petty arguments. They're to be united as one people who have experienced the very same powerful, redeeming grace of God in Christ. Additionally, we see that Paul is struggling to encourage them in order that they may reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Paul wants them to be completely convinced of the gospel that he has proclaimed to them And he wants them to understand it as thoroughly as possible so that when they face these false teachers, they would know what's right and what's wrong. They would know where their hope truly lies. It's for this end that Paul is willing to go through so many hardships that he does. Next, in verse 3, we find the final pieces of an allusion to Proverbs 2, verses 3 through 6, 
And that Proverbs text says this, if you call out to understanding, raise your voice to understanding. If you seek it like silver, search for it like treasure, then you will understand the Lord's fear and you will find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth, discerning knowledge. This combination of wisdom, understanding, knowledge, and hidden treasure are only found in Proverbs 2 and here in Colossians 2. Now, in Colossians, notice what Paul says all of these words relate to. Where are they found? It is in Christ that true wisdom, true knowledge, true understanding, and treasure can be found. Now, it was common for the opponents of the Colossian church, the Jewish mystics, to identify the Torah, the written law, as the epitome of divine wisdom and the location of all these things. But Paul has a different answer. From its first inscription, Paul teaches us, the old law of Israel comes from and points to Jesus Christ, the epitome of divine wisdom. And the Colossians who are in Christ are now able to have access to all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and understanding because they have received the mystery of God, not through the law, but because Christ has been revealed to them through Paul's toilsome struggle to proclaim the gospel. Finally, in verses 4 and 5, we see Paul change topics from the Christ he preaches to those false teachers he's opposing. He says, I say all this, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So when Paul writes, I say this, he's talking about everything he said so far in this passage from 124 to 23. He said all of that in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments, that the Colossians would not be led astray by these nice-sounding speculations. Paul is saying his hearers ought to be fixed on Christ and that they should seek to shrug off anything that could distract them from that target. Christ is the sole source of heavenly wisdom and knowledge, and no speculation, no extraordinary spiritual experience is necessary, but rather the ordinary experience of life together as the church of Christ. Finally, in verse 5, Paul says, no one should delude the Colossians with false teaching because he is with them in spirit even though he is absent in body. We see here that Paul considers this letter he's sending them to represent his authoritative presence in the church. Although he's never even met them face to face, he's still encouraging them and instructing them through this letter. And he's also rejoicing to see their good order and the firmness of their faith in Christ. Circling back to Epaphras' positive report, they have good doctrine, they have firm faith in Christ, and he's glad that they do. And to maintain that good doctrine, though, Paul says, they must maintain their focus on Christ and Christ alone. And as they do, their faith will remain firm. Well, before we pray and close this evening service, I want to make one more application that has to do with taking seriously what Paul took so seriously, Christ-centered ministry. We've seen in this passage that God has commissioned Paul to proclaim the mystery which is Christ in order that everyone may be presented mature, fully complete in Christ. 
Brothers and sisters, Christ-centered ministry is as needed today as it was in Colossae in the first century. First, because we're still a sinful people. There are plenty of sins in the church. I'm sure we could all make our own lists, very long lists of sins that are present in the church. I'll name a few that came to my mind. Abuse, both physical and spiritual. Unwarranted divorce. A consumer mindset that only thinks about getting rather than giving. Gossip, backbiting, other sins of the tongue. Again, the list could go on. These are not exhaustive, but these sins remind us that we're still in desperate need of a Christ-centered ministry to hear that gospel good news over and over again. Second, the church faces the challenges that everybody faces in the 21st century world. Anti-intellectualism on the one hand, hyper-intellectualism on the other, dealing with this new technology that is ubiquitous, can't get away from it, navigating cultural hot topics, especially those surrounding race and and sexuality. We need Christ-centered ministry to help us think rightly about these things. And finally, perhaps most relevant to our passage this evening, are issues surrounding our church fellowship and our unity. It's all too easy to value our opinions more than our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Sadly, we tend to follow the lead of our increasingly polarized culture and cut relational ties with people or at least distance ourselves from them over petty disagreements that have no business coming between us as brothers and sisters in the Lord. These are all big challenges for us, but we know that all of these sins and challenges find their solution in Christ and in him alone. And we can be thankful for faithful ministers who proclaim the gospel of Christ, both in our federation and outside of it. But remember that Paul's desire was for all believers to be encouraged, united in love, and full of understanding. And later on in this epistle, he'll say, He'll command all the Colossians to be involved in building one another up. So the church should be a place of hope and encouragement, a place where we all support one another as we grow and as we continue on that path to a fully realized maturity in Christ. Remember also that Paul suffered as an apostle to the Gentiles, people that many of his fellow Jews deemed unworthy. God's purpose is clear. The church is to welcome all all kinds of people, those we may not have much in common with, those we may feel uncomfortable around, even those we may not like so much. Brothers and sisters, we are not the ones who decides who hears about the glorious riches of Christ. We do not have that power or that right. We can't decide who is eligible to receive those payments and who isn't. As the church of God, we should strive and toil and struggle as Paul did because it will be difficult to reach every person and to become more and more united in love as we continue the path of Christian maturity all the way to the end. Let's pray and ask for God's help in doing so. Thank you, Father, for your word to us tonight and for this letter to the Colossians. We've seen how Paul has suffered and struggled for the sake of your church, for the Colossians, for the Laodiceans, and even down the line for us today. Thank you for Christ, the great mystery which was shrouded in shadow in days past. 
Thank you for revealing his glorious salvation to all people through his death and resurrection. We thank you for the ministry of Paul, that he was joyfully willing to go through all kinds of toil and struggle to present everyone, Jew and Gentile, to Christ. And we thank you for our ministers who are doing the same today. Uphold them in that cause, Lord, for your glory. And we pray also that the results of that ministry would be fruitful in us, your people, that we would be encouraged and united, that as we are filled with your spirit, we would come to a fuller and deeper assurance and understanding of your gospel, that we would be spurred on to love one another and not divide the body that you have brought together. In that process, keep us from all false teaching that threatens. Let us focus on Christ and Christ alone. It's in his name we pray. Amen.